production. Organisational psychologist and one of the most esteemed researchers in business and economics, Adam Grant, specialises in how we can find motivation and meaning in work. He teaches us to think critically and carefully, finding space for flexibility, humility and curiosity. Adam says if knowledge is power, knowing what we don't know is wisdom. Today's conversation traverses many landscapes, the power of knowing what you don't know, unlearning and relearning, and choosing courage over comfort. We equate certainty with confidence and competence. And we associate saying, I might be wrong, or I'm not sure, with weakness. And admitting you're wrong is not a sign of weakness. That's actually a source of strength. Because the faster you recognize that you were wrong, the faster you can move toward getting it right, which is where we all want to land. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life and hopefully yours too. Adam Grant is a New York Times best-selling author of many books, including Originals and his newest book, Think Again. At its essence, this conversation is about how to create opportunities for personal growth, resilience and better understanding the attributes that compel behaviour and decision-making. I really enjoyed my conversation with Adam. May our exchange leave you seeking to more courageously explore the way you think and above all, the impact you leave on others. Adam Grant, you are an esteemed organisational psychologist, one of the world's most influential management thinkers. But how did you get into this line of work? Well, I think... Uh, there's so many things that that mattered. It's hard to know what really pushed me in this direction. But one of the pivotal experiences was being halfway through university, having no idea what I wanted to do with my life and hating that question. Uh, like what a, what a cruel way for adults to put unnecessary pressure on kids, to know exactly what they want to be, to define themselves in terms of work. I avoided that question like the plague, but I realized halfway through university, I, I had to figure it out. And I knew I was fascinated by psychology. I'd been I'd chosen to major in it. I'd been studying it, but I was sure I didn't have the patience to be a clinical psychologist. I also wanted to to try to work on challenges we face in everyday life, not just um, you know mental illness. And so I was really just unsure what to do with it. And then I signed up for an organizational psychology class, which was affectionately known as Psych 8:30 AM. <laughs> for obvious reasons. And I would walk into that class exhausted, having stayed up way too late. And I was at the edge of my seat, the whole class. And the professor on the first day, Richard Hackman, he said uh, he didn't know what he wanted to do when he grew up. So as an organizational psychologist, he got to live vicariously through every career that he thought might be interesting. And it it clicked that I could do that. And every time I've I've thought a job was interesting, I've gone and studied it. And I was also struck that just so many of us spend the majority of our waking hours at work, but so few of us find those hours motivating and meaningful. And I wanted to try to change that. So here we are. So what does it involve being an organizational psychologist? My job is to figure out how to make work not suck, or maybe suck a little bit less. Uh, I think 
there, I guess there are a few different ways that I approach that personally. One is I try to redesign people's jobs to help them understand the, the purpose and the impact of their work. Um, in other cases, I'm working with teams trying to unlock creativity and help people generate great ideas. And a lot of my work takes me into organizations to try to figure out how to build a more collaborative and generous culture. Yes. Uh, so it's a mix of um, doing experiments and surveys and observations and uh, trying to get leaders to occasionally think again. So do people from organizations call you in when they feel that maybe they're, the people that are working for them are unhappy? What point of, of time in the organization do they call you to go, can you come in and help us? So there are basically two kinds of calls that I get regularly. Uh, one is we think we're amazing and we want you to study us so that you can tell the world how great we are. I'm like, mm, that you've already failed my first test, which is you, you did not demonstrate any humility there. No, thank you. The second kind of call is often after three consultants have been fired. And they say, look, we're, we're really struggling as an organization. Sometimes it's productivity issues. Sometimes it's burnout. Uh, sometimes they're worried that they're going to get disrupted and their company is going to go out of business. And they say, okay, we, the consultants haven't worked. Before we give up, why don't we try an academic? Uh, and that was more or less how the beginning of my career uh, sort of unfolded. And increasingly now it's, we read one of your books or we listened to your podcast or we watched a TED Talk. Can you come help us with this thing that you study? And so what do you feel from all of your experience in working in different organizations, the, the things that people, leaders are missing when they are running an organization and their people below them probably aren't as fulfilled as they could be? Well, I think the, the first thing that I started studying on this was uh, a lot of people do work that benefits others, but they have no idea what their impact is day in and day out. So one of my early experiments with, was with fundraising callers who were working at a university and they were basically just raising money for the school. They had no clue where that money went. So I designed a little experiment where a scholarship student came in and he told his story and he said, look, I couldn't afford the tuition. Because of your work, I was able to go to school here and I just wanted to thank you for it. And just being randomly assigned to meet that one scholarship recipient for five minutes led the average caller to spike 142% in weekly minutes on the phone wow. and 171% in weekly revenue. And what was so interesting was when I, I shared the data with the callers afterward, they said, no, there's no way that meeting one scholarship student transformed my motivation like that. I was like, well, we have the randomized controlled experiment and the call center had really high turnover. So I got to repeat the experiment a few times yeah. with new employees and each time the effect worked. And eventually what became clear is you had this job that was very frustrating and stressful. Right? Most of your calls are rejections. It's like being in sales. Mm. And now all of a sudden you've met this scholarship recipient and instead of thinking about this as, oh no, I'm going to interrupt somebody's dinner and they're going to yell at me saying, I already spent thousands of dollars. It's called tuition. Like I don't need to donate any money. Uh, you picture this kid that you're helping and it transforms the meaning of your job and makes you feel like what you're doing is valued in the world. Yeah. So I think this is true in, in so many jobs. And one of the questions I like to ask people now is, if your job didn't exist, who would be worse off? The people you name are the reason that your work matters. You need to know them. You need to hear their stories. You need to be able to connect the dots between your job and the contribution you make to them. Absolutely. 
I mean, we talk a lot about service in this podcast, and I think that is such a big thing. Giving back just makes you so fulfilled. Is there any job that isn't of service that you've come across or all are all jobs of service? Well, I think all jobs serve someone or else they wouldn't exist. Mm, <laughs> but yeah, there definitely true, true. are jobs where you only serve your boss. Yeah. Or, you know, there's one coworker who's completely dependent on you, but you don't feel like your job has a wider impact than that. Yes. And I think those are poorly designed jobs, right? I think in an, in an ideal world, uh, we'd, we'd make sure that every job that somebody spent, you know, what, 10 hours a day on in a lot of cases or eight hours a day or six hours a day, um, that every one of those jobs had a meaningful and lasting impact on somebody. Um, And it doesn't always have to be someone outside the organization. It could very well be that you're serving an internal team, but you want to know that your work doesn't disappear. That what you do today isn't forgotten tomorrow. That's so important. Adam, you have your fascinating book, Think Again. What was the inspiration behind writing that? There were a bunch of them, but one of them was the winter of 2018. I went to a bunch of CEOs and startup founders and I said, look, we already have a lot of evidence. There's actually a meta-analysis, a study of studies showing that as long as people were in the office half the week, you could let them work from anywhere the rest of the time and you'd get more productivity, higher satisfaction and retention and no observable cost to relationships or collaboration. So I wanted to do a a remote Friday experiment. Just give people one day a week to work from anywhere. Every leader I pitched balked. They said things like, we can't open Pandora's box because what if this is bad? We can't take away the freedom. And we think people are going to procrastinate instead of being productive. And we're afraid that our culture is going to fall apart. And I was frustrated, one, because they weren't willing to think again. Two, I had strong evidence and I couldn't get them to think again. And I realized this has been happening throughout my career that my job is to get people to think again, Mm -hmm. to question our fundamental assumptions about work and leadership and motivation and just how we lead our lives even. And so often I've been reluctant to question my assumptions. And then when I finally do, it's hard to get other people on board and I realize this is a challenge in a rapidly changing world that the more quickly the world around you changes, the more quickly you need to revise your own thinking to keep up. And I think this is a real struggle for a lot of people in every aspect of our lives. And, you know, eventually I think when I, when I, when I face a problem repeatedly, uh, at first I think, all right, I hope somebody writes a book about this because then I'll read it and then I'll get better at it. And no one wrote the book. And at some point I realized I really care about this. Nobody else is writing this book. I have to do it. Well, I think the pandemic has been a really interesting thing about us questioning what is true and what isn't. And there's been a huge rise in conspiracy theories. What's your take on that? Well, I am not an expert on conspiracy theories. I hope I don't even believe in any of them. (laughs) But, (laughs) But... uh, I've been I've been reading a lot of the research in psychology on yes. why people are drawn to conspiracy theories, yes. and one of the common motivations that seems to to predict attachment to them is a desire to believe that the world is ordered, not chaotic. That especially when bad things happen, mm. that they were caused by humans, which means they're controllable and maybe preventable. Uh, there was there was one study. This is this is startling that. Anybody would even think to do this study, let alone find the results that they did. But um, a group of researchers took um, the the death of Princess Diana Mm -hmm. 
And they surveyed people on why they thought it happened. And it turned out that the more strongly people believed that Princess Diana was murdered, the more strongly they also believed that she faked her own death. What? Those two things can't be true at the same time. Yeah. Either somebody killed her or she faked her own death. In one case, she's not alive. In the other case, she's alive. Yeah. And people who subscribe to one theory also were more likely to subscribe to the other theory. And what those two theories have in common is, is that sense that, okay, the, the world, these, this, this really awful event that happened on the global stage has human origins. Um, and that means, you know, bad things don't just randomly happen to good people. Yes. And I think that, you know, we, we live in an increasingly chaotic world, right? And we've, we've just dealt with a mega threat in terms of the COVID pandemic. Yeah. And so it creates a lot of uncertainty and instability in people's lives. And what they're now clinging to in a lot of cases is the belief that, okay, this was the you know, sort of the careful plotting of a few people who one day could be stopped as opposed to, you know what? I live in a world that's dangerous and something horrible could happen out of the blue and I never saw it coming. Yeah. That makes so much sense. You talk a lot about questioning things that we hear or are told. And this really stood out to me because it's really interesting. You know, when you have a thought or you've grown up in a sort of environment, you then pick up the belief system of your family and all this kind of stuff. And there was an incident uh, a couple of weeks ago where there was something that I had thought of and I really believed what I thought was correct, as most of us do, because why would you think otherwise? <laughs> and I was, I had actually interviewed someone who I really, really respected and I saw that they had done a video and their video was talking about a certain scenario that had taken place where I had thought a certain side and I heard their view and they had no reason to think, they weren't like any reason to be on a certain side. And it just opened my mind up to the fact that, oh my God, I think I'm wrong. And I think that what I have been thinking for so long is actually incorrect. And you know what, Adam, I actually started to weep. It was this realisation of, my God, there is a lot of suffering going on that I absolutely did not see till I was, my eyes were then pointed on it from someone that I, I looked up to. I feel that a lot of people might not be open to realising that they, they are as wrong. And why do you think that people are so steadfast in their views, even if they get an inkling that there might be wisdom showing them that they could be incorrect? I feel they don't even go there. Yeah, I think there's a there's a psychological piece of that, there's a social piece and then there's a cultural piece. Yeah. Psychologically, uh, it it hurts to admit that you're wrong. Oh. Uh, I mean, ne neuroscientists have even found that it's like being punched in the mind. Uh, that that when somebody tells you you're wrong, um, it activates the amygdala, which is basically the threat detection system. Yes. And then your natural impulse is to defend against that threat um, and try to maintain the, the integrity of your, your views. And you want to do that because it makes you feel like you are right um, and you are intelligent and you are in control. Um, and then socially, I think a lot of people worry if, if other people share their beliefs, that if they let them go, they're going to be excluded from their group yes. or they're going to get ostracized yes. somehow. And then layer on top of that, the cultural pressure we face to associate confidence with competence, 
right? To, to, to signal to people that I have certainty is basically sending a message that I'm an expert, right? Or I have a lot of knowledge. And obviously, I think that's, that's grossly mistaken. Uh, we know that oftentimes the experts are the people who are the fastest to admit what they don't know mm. uh, because they, they realize how incomplete their knowledge is. But um, I think still in, you know, this is particularly true in, in Western cultures around the world. We, we equate certainty with confidence and competence. Yes. And we associate saying, I might be wrong or I'm not sure with weakness. And I guess part of the reason, Sarah, that I wrote Think Again was to help people recognize admitting you're wrong is not a sign of weakness. That's actually a source of strength. Because the faster you recognize that you are wrong, the faster you can move toward getting it right, which is yes. where we all want to land. Yeah, absolutely. You say that our ways of thinking become habits that can weigh us down. Why is that? I think a lot of us prefer the comfort of conviction over the discomfort of doubt. Yeah. And it would it would actually be really difficult to live in a world where we didn't just take for granted our, you know, our assumptions because, you know, every day you could wake up and say, oh no, what if, what if I can't trust the person I'm married? What if my coworkers are out to get me? <laughs> what if I'm in the wrong line of work? What if, and you could, you know, you could yeah. basically question everything and you wouldn't be able to function. You'd be, I guess, trapped in analysis paralysis. So I think we've, we've gotten good as a species at you know, sort of forming an opinion and saying, okay, this is the way I do things and it's comfortable and familiar and it works for me and I don't have to question it and waste all this time and energy reevaluating my whole life all the time. I think we overdo that though. Yes. Uh, I think we, we overdo it in part because, um, because we're, I guess we're, we're adapted in some ways for a world that rewards us for, for sticking to our guns, right? For, for standing still. Um, and I, I can't think of a better example of that in the U.S. than, <laughs> than the gun rights issue. Oh. Like, I know in, a, in Australia, you look at this and oh, you think that Americans are insane. Insane. I love and Americans. We, I love Americans when it comes to the guns. I just, I, that just dumbfounds me. Same. And the, I, I love the Jim Jeffries uh, stand-up routine on this. I'm sure you've seen it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I just, I thought it was, it was pure genius. But, you know, it's, it's, such a, it's such a prime example for me of saying, okay, there's, you know, there's a large group of people in my country who developed at a very early age before they were cognitively sophisticated, uh, a belief that, you know, anybody trying to take away your, you know, your right to bear arms was threatening your freedom. And then overgeneralizing that in a massive way, forgetting that, I don't know, when the Constitution was written, there were not semi-automatic weapons yeah. uh, or assault rifles, right? We were looking at a little musket. Uh, and it's just, I think it's, it's easier for people to live in a world where their former beliefs were true. And also, if they were to change, it evokes a tremendous amount of cognitive dissonance. Yes. Like, wow, not only am I wrong right now, I've been wrong for the last 10, 20, 30 years. I have made a bunch of stupid statements in public that mm. I've defended passionately and I can't go and erase all of that. So it's easier to maintain my past beliefs than it is to correct my past behavior. Do you think a lot of the time, and even if people aren't on a stage, if they have an inkling that they could be incorrect, they hold on to their initial beliefs just because? Well, I think they, that that inkling has to come from somewhere, yes. right? 
So they've, they've either had a conversation or an experience or mm. they've read something that threatened their beliefs. And whether they're, they're then going to pause and, and say, I really need to rethink this depends on a few things. One is, are they motivated to find the truth? Uh, or are they just trying to, you know, to, to maintain their status in their tribe? Yes. Uh, I think is, is a critical question. I think the other one that, that really looms large when you look at the data is the question of how, how hard would it be to revise this belief? Mm. So uh, I'll give you a personal example. I was, I remember finding out a few years ago that Pluto is not a planet. I was, I was pretty upset. <laughs> and I, I it's it's so interesting to have these experiences as a psychologist because this is what I study. Yes, and I, I remember thinking like, what what do you mean Pluto isn't a planet? Like, was my elementary school teacher <laughs> lying to me? Like, what are you, what are you going to tell me next? Like, the the heliocentric universe was also or solar system was a little bit off too. Like, maybe the the Earth is actually revolving around a moon. I I really hope not. Like, what what counts as settled science and what doesn't? And all of a sudden, I realized that. Uh, that it, I, I have no attachment to Pluto. I could care less. <laughs> yeah. I, like, not planning to go there anytime <laughs> soon. And like, it doesn't matter even whether you label it a planet or not. Pluto is still Pluto. What bothered me was I had an anchor about our place in the solar system. Yes. And that anchor was kind of poked a little bit and it made me w wonder what else isn't true. And I guess, Sarah, the point that I would make from that is the more <laughs> one, one belief... Uh, that might be wrong um, is connected to some deeper beliefs or some core principles, um, the harder it is to let go of it. Mm. Whereas, you know, if, if you told me that, I don't know, some distant star uh, was in fact, you know, not a star, but a black hole, I wouldn't care because that's not tied into my worldview in any, in any way. Yes, that makes so much sense. Adam, you have a really interesting story about your role in Harvard's first online social network. I actually had no idea about this till I read your book. Can you can you tell us a bit about this story? It's so interesting. Okay, so let's go back to 1999. A group <laughs> of high school seniors get into Harvard. They want to go, but they're afraid they're not going to have any friends there. So they go to the state-of-the-art technology at the time, which is America Online. They start searching profiles to find future classmates. And they find a few and they start a little email list. And then every week they add more people to the list. And by the time they arrive on campus, they've connected more than an eighth of the entering Harvard freshman class. And then they shut down their social network saying, we all live in the same town. We don't need a, an online social network anymore. And Mark Zuckerberg starts, starts Facebook in the house next door five years later. So the students who co-founded that original social network have lived with deep regret ever since. And I know this because I was one of them. Uh, I, was, uh, I was one of the co-founders. Uh, and it never even occurred to me to rethink a bunch of those assumptions. I did not realize that social media would be useful even if you could interact with people face-to-face. I had no idea this was more than a passing hobby, that it might be a business. I saw myself as a student. It didn't occur to me to question that identity and say, I could be an entrepreneur. Uh, and it, it obviously, it was such a missed opportunity to think again. And let's be clear, I don't know how to code. I never would have had the vision for what Facebook yes. became. 
But I think a lot of us have been in that position where we had an idea or we made a decision. We didn't realize we were making assumptions. And in hindsight, we probably should have identified them and rethought them. On that topic, you have a really interesting story about Mike, who was the owner of BlackBerry, about how he was very steadfast. He didn't rethink to move BlackBerry onto something even more than what it was. Mike Lazaridis, such a such a prime example of a dynamic that really surprised me when I was researching Think Again. I assumed that the smarter you were, the better you'd be at rethinking. And the data showed the exact opposite, that the more intelligent you were, the more likely you were to find reasons to stick mm-hmm. with your existing beliefs. And you could always convince yourself that you had been right in the past and you were sort of contorting your intelligence into a weapon against the truth. And I thought Mike Lazaridis was a really interesting example of this because he he probably more than anybody else in our time ignited the smartphone revolution. Yeah. Right. At the like, early days, um, the the BlackBerry was actually just a two way pager, and it it dawned on him as an electrical engineer that you could reimagine it and create a two way communication device that would allow us to send emails on the go. And the BlackBerry exploded. Right. Everyone, I think everyone you knew probably had one at oh, one point. Absolutely. Uh, and. It, I mean, it just dominated the market. And although he was able to rethink other people's assumptions, he did not want to let go of his own. Mm. Uh, he resisted the idea of a touchscreen. He said, you know, the, like, the keyboard is the thing that everybody wants. Uh, he thought of the device as only useful for work emails, forgetting that, you know, there might be millions of people using it that way, but there were potentially billions of people who would use it for home entertainment. And even when the iPhone came out, uh, he pried it open. Uh, he he like he's an engineer. This is what he does. He opens it up, and he he says they they put a computer inside of this thing. And even at that point, he still doesn't want to rethink the BlackBerry. At <clears throat> I think at their peak, they were valued at over seventy billion dollars, wow. and they still only had one product. It was just different versions of a BlackBerry. Like, wouldn't you take those resources and maybe experiment with a few other possibilities too? And he just, he fell in love with his baby. And it was, for me, it was a tragedy because I still miss the keyboard. I was with him on that. I thought it was better than the touch screen. I hate typing on this stupid iPhone, but I was wrong. Whatever happened to Mike Lazaridis? Well, it's, you know, this is is probably the epilogue that I should have written in the book, but... (laughs) It turns out that when, you know, when RIM essentially goes bust as a company, uh, you have all of these great tech engineers and programmers uh, and designers who then are looking for jobs and they're all living in Waterloo, Canada. And dozens and dozens of them have started companies and they've basically built this extraordinary tech ecosystem in this kind of middle of nowhere town in Canada so you could you could consider him now the patron saint of Canadian hotbeds of entrepreneurship, <laughs> but I'm still mad that the BlackBerry is not functional. Well, that, yeah, I know. It's a, such a shame and such an amazing story to prove your point about thinking again. Adam, you say if we are preaching, we don't see gaps in our knowledge. Can you explain that to us? Yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about the mental models that stop us from thinking again. Yeah, great. So my colleague, my colleague Phil Tetlock, did uh, this great. This he wrote a brilliant paper about how we spend too much time when we make decisions, when we explain ourselves to other people, thinking like preachers, prosecutors, and politicians. 
When you're in preacher mode, you're trying to defend your views. Mm. When you're in prosecutor mode, you're attacking somebody else's views. And when you're in politician mode, you only listen to people who share your views. And it's easy to see why those mindsets stop you from thinking again, because you've already decided that you're right and they're wrong. So they need to rethink, but you're good. You've, you've already discovered the truth. Uh, and I think the, the preaching impulse comes in part from uh, wanting to, to not only validate our own beliefs, but also then to, to get that sense of, of reinforcement. Like if, I could, if I could persuade more people that I've seen the light, then my truth will be more widely shared. And that means I live in a world where I'm definitely right. That's so interesting. Where did you get such an inquisitive mind from? I don't know. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I've, I, this is this is the curse of you know trying to. Like, I I always like to study things that don't happen inside my own head because then I can design experiments and measure them. And I can't really do that in my own brain. Yes. Um, I think what one thing that that was really pivotal for me was I had a a mentor in college, Brian Little, who is a personality psychologist, and. Every single class, he would just shatter one of my assumptions. And I should have been upset about it because some of, some of his arguments threatened my, my basic beliefs. I remember, uh, <laughs> I, I remember one lecture in particular where uh, he, he, he's just a captivating speaker. If you haven't watched his TED Talk on uh, Who Are You Really? Uh, the Puzzle of Personality, you get a taste. He's... Uh, he's just electrifying on stage. It's like the professor version of Bono. Amazing. Uh, and he he dispenses wisdom and he makes you laugh. And it's just a it's just a remarkably great performance. And he at the end of one of the classes, we were talking about personality, and uh, he spent a lot of his career studying introverts and extroverts. And he disclosed that he was an introvert. And no, that can't be. Like this guy is an extraordinary performer. He has to be an extrovert. And you know, the the more closely I paid attention, the more I listened to his stories, the more I understood the data, the more clear it became that yes, he was acting out of character. And that really should have bothered me at a deep level, uh, because he was. You know, I I believe that you you had to be an extrovert to be a great uh, a great teacher or a great performer. I was wrong, but I was exhilarated. And I think what Brian did was uh, he made that feeling of being wrong a moment of discovery. Yeah. Uh, it was an aha. It was a eureka experience. And I think I wanted to find more of those after taking his class. And I wanted to also to try to create that experience for other mm. people. Talking about an extrovert and an introvert, you talk about confidence in your book. You say that one of your newly formed beliefs is that we're sometimes better off underestimating ourselves. Why is that? Uh, surprise for me. I did not see this going in, but we had a doctoral student, Basima Tufik, who's now an MIT professor. And Basima got really interested in imposter syndrome. Mm. And I'd, I'd really never thought about this, uh, excuse me, I'd really never thought about it this way until uh, until I, I did a deep dive in her research. And it, it suddenly hit me. Why do we have to turn those moments of thinking that other people are overestimating us into a syndrome? Like, yes, there are people who walk around believing chronically, I'm a fraud. I haven't earned any of my success. And it's only a matter of minutes until everyone <laughs> finds out and I'm done for. 
That is a pretty rare way to live your life. Yeah. Right? Most people, when they feel like imposters, it's much more situational. It's temporary. It's yes. fleeting. It's like... Oh, you know, I wonder if I'm if I'm prepared for this interview. Is Sarah going to ask me a question that I'm not ready to answer? Oh no, uh, I wonder if I'm up to the challenge of this promotion that I just got. Uh, and you know, we all have those flickers Absolutely. of doubt where we think maybe other people believe I'm more competent than I really am. And what Basima found in, his, in her research is, if you just measure how often people have those doubts, uh, there there aren't really consistent costs of them. And in fact, there are some benefits. Uh, sometimes people work harder because they feel like they have to close the gap between you know, how confident they are in themselves and other people's expectations of them. They have something to prove. Other times they work smarter. Uh, they say, okay, I don't really know what I'm doing here. So let me go and learn from other people. And yes. they end up rethinking things. Uh, so I think my, my takeaway from this research is that when you have those imposter moments, instead of letting them hold you back, treat them as as fuel and say, mm-hmm. okay, like, I, other people think I am awesome. And I don't know whether I deserve that or not, but I am going to do my best to earn it. Yeah. And I think when you start thinking that other people think you're awesome, it, if anything, gives you more confidence. And it, you kind of thrive on that, which can be such a good thing. But what happens with people who are overly confident? How have you found their brains wired to rethinking because I would assume, I could be wrong, that a lot of them are quite steadfast in the way that they are with their beliefs and thoughts. That's exactly where I landed. Although, like you, I'm open to rethinking this. But <laughs> there, there, is, there is a good body of evidence suggesting that when people are overconfident, they don't change their minds. Yeah, uh, And I think... I, I love the Dunning-Kruger effect uh, as an explanation of, of part of this. So uh, this, this pair of psychologists has, has found for a couple decades now that the, the people who have the least expertise in a given area are the most likely to overestimate themselves. Really? So the, the people who score worst on logical reasoning tests, emotional intelligence tests, um, even sense of humor... Uh, are the most likely to overestimate how logical, uh, how emotionally skilled, and how funny they are. And the you know some of this could be ego, but one of the factors is, uh, as, as Dunning puts it, when you lack the ability to produce excellence, that also means you lack the ability in many situations to judge or recognize excellence. Yes. Uh, I, I always think of this friend I had in high school who accused me of lacking a sense of humor. And one day she said, you, you, you really don't have a sense of humor. And I said, I, I'm just curious, what makes you think that? And she said, well, you don't laugh at all my jokes. Like, I will leave it to you to figure out who doesn't have a sense of humor. But like, if you don't have a good feeling for what's funny, you can't really judge whether you're funny, right? Absolutely. That within itself is hysterical. Let's talk about why being wrong is not always bad. Well, my favorite conversation I had on this was with the Nobel Prize winner, Danny Kahneman. Uh, Danny is, uh, he's a legend in psychology. And if you've ever talked about confirmation bias or heuristics or, um, you know, system one versus system two thinking, you're, you're using Danny's work. And I, I have seen him on several occasions find out that 
he was wrong and then just light up. Um, wh- one of the, one of the times I was giving a presentation and I, I ran into him afterward and he said, that was wonderful. I was wrong. I'm like, wait, those two things don't normally go hand in hand. Like that, that should be an oxymoron. Yeah. If it was wonderful, that should be because I was right. What, what's going on here? And I, I tracked him down to try to, to get to the bottom of it. And he's usually a, a pretty pessimistic guy. You don't, you don't see him express a lot of joy, but yes. when, when he kind of try, almost triumphantly announces that he's wrong, his eyes start to twinkle. Uh, you, you hear his, you know, his, his voice picks up and he starts talking faster and you can feel the excitement. And I said, Danny, it seems like you enjoy being wrong. Like what's, what's going on there? And he corrected me as you would expect a Nobel laureate to do. He said, I don't know anyone who enjoys being wrong, but I do enjoy finding out I was wrong because it means I've discovered something and I'm now less wrong than I was before. And it was that that was such a it was such an elegant explanation of yeah you know, it, it immediately hit me that was the rush that I felt as a yes. psychology student that and I said Danny that uh, yes <laughs> finding out that I was wrong means I've learned something I love that. and he said that is the only way that I ever know I've learned anything. Aww. After you wrote this book, or even before you had written this book, Adam. Have you? Do you rethink a lot of what you had thought before or now? Yeah, I have to, right? Otherwise, I'd be a hypocrite. Yeah. So, <laughs> I actually, I've gotten some funny emails from uh, like friends and family who knew me a long time ago, uh, who have said, "You know, you, you're on the record saying we should all think again. I have something that you should rethink, and in fact, you should have rethought a long time ago." I'm like. Okay, I'm in principle open to rethinking anything, but it has to be based on strong evidence or compelling logic. And also, if you want to enter into this conversation with me, you should recognize that I also expect you to be open to thinking again. So we'll see where this goes. But yeah, I've I've rethought a lot of things. I'll, I'll give you a, an example that that both is something that I've rethought um, personally, and also something now I've rethought from the book. So you, you'll know from the book that I, I suggested that we should be open to rethinking our beliefs, but we should stay true to our values. Yes. Uh, that you shouldn't anchor your identity on what you think is true. Your identity should be rooted in what you think is important. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the, the, I guess the easy way to explain that is if you went to a doctor who, like, whose identity was about beliefs, uh, you could today see a professional lobotomist. Uh, who says, like, I believe that lobotomies are the best way to cure mental problems, and I'm going to defend that belief. That's who I am. I do lobotomies. Like, I would not want to see that medical professional. I would want to go to the person whose identity is anchored in doing whatever helps patients. Yes. And who then evolves what the best practice is according to the data, right? Yeah. So I think where I landed, if you push that argument to its extreme, is we should rethink our our beliefs, but not our values. Mm. And I have rethought that. I think we need to rethink our values too. I don't think we should necessarily do it every day. But I think we should do a checkup once or twice a year where we pause and ask, uh, do I have the right principles? Uh, has what, What's important to me shifted since I last gave this a lot of thought? Um, do I have them in the right order, knowing that I can't live all my values at the same time mm. and I can't give equal attention to all my values? And... Does my does the way I spend my time reflect those values? Yeah. 
And where that landed me is for a long time, when people have asked me my values, I've said generosity, excellence, integrity, freedom. Mm. And it was really clear. Like I will, if I have a choice about how to spend my time, I will prioritize what helps other people, what allows me to achieve something that matters. Um, and not to say that integrity is less important those, than those things. I just hope my integrity is threatened yeah. less often than you know the everyday opportunities I have to accomplish something or to help someone. But I went through that values list after the book came out a couple months ago, and I realized learning was not on my list of values. Mm. This is a problem. <laughs> this is a problem because like, rethinking doesn't fit into that system of values. And yet it's so core to my identity that I wrote a whole book about it. Yeah. So then I had to rethink my values to incorporate rethinking. Uh, I'm still deliberating about where it goes. Uh, I, I sort of temporarily convinced myself for a day or two that rethinking was a path toward excellence. And in a, in a dynamic world, people who don't rethink end up going the way of the BlackBerry. But then I rethought that and said, hmm, no, there are a lot of things that I can do pretty well uh, that don't require me to rethink. And I want to make this a separate value. So that is something I've rethought. And it also is something that I think other people should rethink. I totally agree with you. And I think one thing I always kind of... Oh, that's so disappointing. <laughs> how, how am I supposed to learn something from someone who agrees with my conclusions? Well, you know, there was a very good conclusion. But what I've always said is that I believe that we should all study a realm and a range of different things. So on the podcast, I interview, as you do, a range of different people from different backgrounds. And that allows everyone to then take the knowledge that they're learning and formulate their own opinions and values rather than just concentrate on one person's work. Because I know a lot of people can become quite into or obsessed with a certain person and a teacher or a thought leader and that's all of the their knowledge they get from kind of one funnel. And what I've always done in my life, and I think it makes you an inquisitive and curious person, is to look at what everyone is saying and then come up with your own conclusions. I love that. Why would you want to limit your learning to one person? Yeah. Like when, when was the last time you met someone who was good at everything? Well, that's it. Absolutely. That person would be really annoying if they did exist. But yes. uh, let, me, let me try to live one of those values now then and ask you, Sarah, what's something you think I should rethink? I think that sometimes when there's smoke, there's fire. And I don't believe in hardcore conspiracy theories, but I think that maybe if you looked into some of them, there would be some truth. Do you have an example? Mm, people take things a long way, but sometimes you hear about things and you go, oh, all right, I, I, there might be some truth in that. And I think COVID and the whole idea of COVID and some of the theories that people have and I've spoken to, and I actually don't know your opinions on any of them really, I've, I've thought about myself and I think like, there could be a lot of truth in that. Well, my job is to not have opinions, right? Yes. But to to try to find the best data and then let that, you know, sort of guide my judgment. And I, I don't I don't feel that I know anywhere near enough to have even a hunch about where COVID came from. Yes. And it's it's kind of shocking to me that so many people have a belief about it at all, given how little we know, right? Yes. And 
how how little information the Chinese government has released. Um, how you know, frankly, how how little I think scientists even understand about how a pandemic gets like this gets started, right? Yes. And what the the different possible sources are and how likely each one is. But it's so interesting that you say this because. I was confronted yesterday with evidence that a conspiracy theory that I dismissed appears to have held some truth. Yes, uh, and I didn't. I it, it didn't hit me that that's what it was until you just said I should I should be a little more open. Um, it's the it's the. Have you followed the Free Britney movement? I'd heard about it, but I had no idea what was going on. And then I read her statement, and I was like, "My God, this poor girl has been tortured." Yeah. I, I I remember hearing about the movement, which was obviously a big deal in yeah. the States, you know, three, four years ago and thinking, what are the odds that someone as powerful and successful as Britney Spears yes. is like the victim of, you know, her father taking control over? It just sounded preposterous. And now it looks like it wasn't a conspiracy. No. Like, I mean, it's crazy that there's a legal system that allows somebody who's an adult yes. uh, and in many ways high functioning like to, to, to lose control over their identity and their time and their choices yeah. like to take freedom away that way just seems wrong at a fundamental level. Um, but yeah, I've had to rethink that. So I think you're onto something, Sarah. Look, it, it is really interesting. And your whole idea about rethinking, I just think is so phenomenal how do leaders, you deal with so many of them, embrace vulnerability and have that kind of confident humility? Uh, this is one of the things I admire most in watching Jacinda Ardern over the past, what, 16 or so months? Yes. Is I, I think the hallmark of her leadership is you know having the confidence to admit what she doesn't know. I remember watching one of her her earliest messages when COVID first started uh, that that basically led with, we, we don't understand how to stop this. So we're going to take some pretty extreme measures and we're going to evolve as, as science evolves, as the information evolves. Yeah. And I think that's, that's exactly what we're looking for leaders to do, right? Is to say, I do not know. This is a, a new and complex problem, but I'm confident that we can figure it out. Mm. Uh, and obviously that's easier to do if people already trust you and respect you. Yes. It's also easier to do if, uh, if you've established your competence. Uh, people give you a little bit more leeway. But I think that leaders should recognize that vulnerability is not the opposite of resilience. Mm. It's actually a path to resilience. Yes. If you can admit what you don't know, if you can talk about some of your insecurities... Uh, then other people are more likely to help you. And if if you are secure enough in your strengths to acknowledge your weaknesses, guess what? People will step up to compensate for those weaknesses or work with you to overcome them. And I, st I studied this with one of our doctoral students, Konstantinos Kudaferis. And we found that when we randomly assign leaders and managers uh, to actually share their performance reviews with their teams or talk about their weaknesses and their development goals, yes. that their teams felt safer to speak up for at least the next year because those leaders weren't just claiming they were open to criticism. They were proving they could take it and they were asking their teams to hold them accountable. Mm. Uh, there's a, I, I just actually um, recorded uh, a conversation for an upcoming podcast episode with um, one of my favorite military leaders, uh, Admiral William McRaven. Uh, I've recorded uh, he, with him as well. 
I've done oh, an episode. Of course you have. Yeah, of course. I did an episode, one of the best episodes I think I've ever done at the start of the year with him. He's phenomenal. Incredible, right? So yeah. he he led the Osama bin Laden yes. raid uh, and just has had an extraordinarily decorated career. And one, I served on a board with him for a couple of years. And one of the things I watched him do at the beginning of welcoming a new team was acknowledging his own fallibility. Mm. He, he would come in and say, this mission is extremely important and I might make a mistake. Uh, here are the kinds of bad judgment calls I've made in the past. Yeah. And your job is to protect all of us from me. <laughs> so there, there's no benefit to holding on to bad news. It doesn't get better over time. Uh, the sooner you tell me if you think I'm going to screw something up, the better. Yes. And if I find out that you knew I was going to screw something up and you didn't tell me immediately, <laughs> we're going to have a conversation. Yes, I love that. that like, that's the right kind of vulnerability in leaders. Yes, yes, it's so true. No one's perfect. So just because someone is at the top, for them to take that and think that they can't show any vulnerability would be you know, preposterous. It's it's crazy to think that anybody expects you to have all the answers. Yeah. And I think my, you know, my, I guess my simple advice on this for leaders is usually the people around you can see your weaknesses more clearly than you can. Yes. So if you can't ever admit them, then you're in danger of being the emperor with no clothes mm. <laughs> where, where everybody else is aware of your problems except for you. And you might as well get credit for having the humility to, to see them and the integrity to point them out yourself before yes. other people embarrass you with them. Absolutely. Adam, you talk about not being attached to everything that we think. And how do we best practice detachment? Because I know that can be so hard for so many people. It, it is a hard skill to learn. And even people who, who practice it regularly struggle with it. Yes. I think the, the best example I've seen on this is in the world of forecasting. So as you know, mm. there are people who compete in tournaments to try to predict the future. So let's say Tokyo Olympics, who do you think is going to win the, the women's gymnastics? And I think anybody who's been following it would say Simone Biles. She's the greatest gymnast of all time. And most forecasters would stop there and just bet on Simone Biles. What the best forecasters do differently is they keep tracking new information and they revise their predictions as they find new information. But they also, right at, right at the outset, they detach themselves from their predictions by making a list of conditions that would change their mind. Uh. So if you wanted to be a sophisticated forecaster, you would say, okay, I'm pretty confident that Simone Biles is going to win. She's essentially undefeated since forever ago, and she's in a league of her own. But if she got injured, I might have to rethink that. If uh, it was you know, revealed that there's um, a gymnast in Ukraine uh, who can do all of the Biles moves and more, and we hadn't heard of her and they've been keeping her a secret, like, maybe that would be competition. Maybe I should rethink it if, if I discover that there's someone super talented but unknown. And once you identify those conditions, they keep you honest. Uh, because you haven't gotten attached to your prediction yet. You haven't fall in love with, fallen in love with it yet. You haven't committed to it yet. And I think we should do the same thing when we make big decisions. Mm. You take a new job, make a list of conditions that would lead you to rethink it. Uh, maybe an abusive boss or a toxic culture mm. or just incredibly boring or mind-numbing work. Yes. And that way, when one of those triggers gets tripped, 
you say, okay, I committed that I was going to be open to reevaluating if this happened and now it happened. It's, it's almost like in a romantic relationship, having a list of deal breakers. Uh, I think we, we ought to do that for all the important decisions in our lives. Yes. Adam, you, you talk about agreeable and disagreeable people and the, the whole idea of givers and takers. Okay, as a highly agreeable person, yeah. I'm a people pleaser. I like harmony. I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. And what that means is in too many moments in my past, yeah. I have shied away from telling people what they need to rethink because I don't want to threaten their egos. And I regret that because it means that I've held back on honesty and I've tried to get comfortable being a little bit more disagreeable and being someone who will give you the unpleasant truth as I see it mm. rather than telling you the comforting lie. And I've done that because I value those people immensely in my life. Um, agreeable people make for a great support network, but they're uncomfortable with conflict. Yeah. They don't want to rock the boat. So they they often do what I did, which is they they fail to tell you what you should question. Mm. And it's the disagreeable people in your life who are often better for, for playing this other role that I call a challenge network. Uh, your challenge network is the group of thoughtful critics who you trust to hold up a mirror so you can see your own blind spots more clearly. Yes. And one of the things I've done over the past year is I've gone to some of the most disagreeable people in my life and I've said, you may not know this, but I consider you a founding member of my challenge network. Then I had to explain what in the world the challenge network was. But I told them, I know I haven't always taken your criticism well. Sometimes I've gotten defensive. Other times I've just been a little dismissive because I, I thought I was done and I didn't want to pause to rethink it. And I regret that. I know I need you to push me to think again. So if you ever hesitate because you're afraid of hurting my feelings or hurting our relationship, don't. The only way you can hurt me is by not telling me the truth. Mm. And the more honest you are with me, the more I value you and our relationship because I never have to second guess. Yeah. I never have to question. And I have gotten much better critical feedback since I had those conversations. Uh, I do think it's important though that the disagreeable people that you recruit into your challenge network are doing it because they're trying to give, not take. Uh, if their motivation is to try to take you down a notch, or to try to make themselves feel better. Uh, obviously, you, you have to question whether they're being honest with you. Yeah. It's the disagreeable givers who will challenge you because they care about you, who dish out tough love because they want to help you, who give you the best critical feedback. It's really interesting. When you were talking about that, it reminded me of an interview I did, I'm sure you know her, with Laurie Gottlieb. She's a psychologist. Yeah, Great therapist. May, yeah. And she talks about the advice that we give friends who are going through a bad run in their life and say you've broken up with someone and you could say, oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, the guy was a dickhead or just agree with everything that the person who is grieving is saying. But she's like, there's no point in doing that. That's not going to help the person in the long run, you know, and to your point, you have to speak your truth and that's what's going to enable them to move further uh, through that grieving period. So it absolutely makes so much sense. Yeah, although I, I'll, I'll put a little disclaimer on yes. here because this is this is a role I play regularly in office hours with students. Uh, they have big choices to make. They're, they're not sure what to do. They don't really like or trust their parents as much as they used to. So they go to the other adult that they have access to, which is their teacher. And I have made the mistake consistently in office hours where I hear a student leaning very far in one direction and I've seen other students go down that path 
and they've often regretted not being a little bit more open. And so I push really hard on the other direction to try to be that challenge network. And <laughs> they don't like it. They they feel like I'm not supporting them. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, you know, it, I actually was told by one student, <laughs> this is maybe two, three years ago now. Uh, he said, you know, I, I just feel like whatever I say I want to do, you're poking holes in it. Oh. And I said, yeah, isn't, isn't that my job? Isn't that why you're here? <laughs> like, don't, don't you want to have your decision pressure tested to make sure you haven't missed anything? And he said, no, I just, I wanted your approval for a decision I already made. Mm-hmm. <gasps> Oops. I completely misunderstood what this interaction was. And now uh, I've, I've t- I'll tell you what, I, I find this helpful with friends and family too, not just at work. Um, I, when somebody comes to me for advice, I start by asking, why are you here? If you're just here for my stamp of approval, you've got it. Like, yeah. I want you to do whatever you think is going to lead to your happiness or success or whatever whatever your goal is. Um, and you don't have to sell me that this is right for you. You, you know better than I do what's right for you, yes. I hope. Uh, but I know sometimes people ask me for advice because they are looking to sort of stress test where they're leaning right now, or they want to hear how I would think through this decision to see what they might be missing. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe even they want to have their their kind of assumptions challenged at a fundamental level. So tell me, why are you here? And then I find out what their actual goal is, and I'm in a much better position to help them. People do not always benefit from you being their challenge network. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and it's not always the right moment, or you're not always the right person to deliver the message. And so, I've I guess I've had to learn to like I I was too agreeable and I overcorrected <laughs> and I was too disagreeable and now I'm trying to bring in the nuance and find out what does this person need from me yes, right now. Yes, yes. Oh, those are such wise words. What makes, in your opinion, a good leader? I think. I think my data on leadership, because I, like, I don't want to have opinions on this. My job is to, yes. to get the best randomized controlled experiments. That's and why we love you, studies. Adam. That's why we love you. <laughs> <laughs> no. So from your studies, uh, what makes a good leader? Yeah, there we go. No, uh, you shouldn't have to ask it that way for me to give you my data. But uh, there's some... Obviously, there there are skills that are important in leadership, and I think we know what those are, right? It's hard to be a, a good leader if you're not a, a careful decision maker, if yeah. you're not good at articulating a vision and building relationships and resolving conflict. I think of those skills as table stakes. Uh, what I'm more interested in is is the values and the character uh, that determine like what do you use your competence for. Mm. And I think we underappreciate generosity and humility uh, as as qualities yes. in leaders. Um, flexibility too. Flexibility, uh, I think, huge. Yeah, like, I think the leader that I want to work for, um, and the leader who succeeds in the long run in my data, is the leader who is doing it out of a motivation to give rather than take. Mm-hmm. Uh, who's who believes that success means making other people successful, elevating a team as opposed to undermining the people around you. Uh, and that's the generosity piece. Um, the humility piece is the, you know, not, not just seeing your weaknesses, but being determined to overcome them. Yes. Uh, being somebody who has high aspirations for excellence, but low ego and believes you can always get better. 
And the flexibility is really what we've been talking about most yeah. of this conversation. It's it's being quick to think again and saying, all right, like as fast as I am to form an opinion, I should be every bit as fast to reconsider that opinion. Yes. What makes a good employer? A good employer? Oh, there was... There's a, a classic study actually that Joanne Martin led where hundreds and hundreds of organizational stories are evaluated as a window into culture. And people are asked, uh, what's something that happens in your workplace that would never happen anywhere else? And when you ask people that question, they tell you all the things that are unique about their employer, except they're the same things people talk about at every other employer. Mm. And I think if you look at the the major themes that come out in those stories, uh, there are different there are different ways of of cutting the data, but there are three themes that I see jump out over and over again. Um, there's safety, justice, and control. Uh, so safety is psychological safety. Uh, I can be candid. I can speak truth to power without being punished. Uh, people will have my back. Justice is uh, the little person can get to the top. Mm. Uh, the the person at the top is not going to get special privileges just because they have power or status. And control is I can shape my destiny around here. Uh, I can I can make a dent or a difference. Yeah. And I think if you know if you wander into an employer that offers you safety, justice, and control, uh, you've landed in a pretty healthy workplace mm. that cares about your well-being and invests in your success. And if you don't, you might have a toxic culture on your hands. Mm. Yes, that's so true. Adam, what is the best advice that you've ever been given? Don't take advice from strangers. <laughs> They don't know you. Yeah. They don't know what your situation is. Be a little bit skeptical there. I, I actually think the the best advice I've received on this uh, has to do with how to get better advice, uh, which is <laughs> if, if you if you are facing a dilemma uh, or a big decision and you're tempted to seek advice, instead find somebody who has a similar decision or dilemma and give them advice. And what you will generally find is the advice you give is the advice you need to take. Beautiful. I love that. Adam, what is the lesson that has taken you the longest to learn? <laughs> I'm, still, I'm still trying to learn this one. That, uh, that there are people in the world who feel that I am disrespecting them if I'm late. I've been told this so many times and I can't wrap my, wrap my mind around it. I just, I understand it intellectually. I, I get it. But it's just preposterous to me that like, well, I, I didn't know what I would be doing tomorrow. Like, well, let, let's take, like I was a couple of minutes late tonight, more yes. than a couple, right? I think I was 10, 11 minutes late. Yeah, maybe. It yeah, which fine. I'm it sorry for. It was fine. I didn't but care. I was just happy that I saw you. <laughs> <laughs> well, so what goes through my head is when we scheduled this, like I didn't know that uh, that our son's bedtime would be a little later than uh, than we had scheduled, and he successfully would make me rethink like this, <laughs> like a summer bedtime schedule as a seven year old, and I didn't plan for that. You know, in other situations, I didn't know that I was going to get into a creative zone of flow. And it, yeah. it was going to be a precious sort of opportunity to uh, to flesh out an idea. And, you know, hopefully the the person who's waiting for me values me enough that they will forgive me for the five or yes. 10 minutes. But also, I love it when people are late. It gives me time to catch up on work. 
And I just cannot fathom this idea that anyone should be a slave to clock time. Yes. Like, I think our, our time should be driven by the people and projects that matter to us, not the calendars that control mm. our lives. And no matter how many times somebody tells me this, I just can't quite compute it. And it drives my wife insane. I love that. Actually, you've just made me rethink. I mean, I didn't have steadfast views on it, but one of my good friends is one of those people who hates when anyone is late. She thinks it's... Oh, the punctuality police. It's an absolute, like you're disrespecting her as a person. Uh, So it's really interesting to hear your opinion because um, it has so many legs as well. Yeah, I I also think whenever somebody says, like being late is disrespecting my time. Like, don't, don't be selfish. I was being too respectful of the nine other people's time who like staying a little extra with each of them made me late for you. And it's always the person later in my day who, who suffers. Yes. So if you really are that into me respecting your time, just be first on my calendar. <laughs> <laughs> That's a nice out. <laughs> What's your greatest hope for society today? My greatest hope for society today, my greatest hope for society right now is that people could get better at mental time travel and realize how many of the things they believe right now are going to sound absurd in a hundred years. Just like if you met someone from like 1920 or 21, they would believe a bunch of things you think are silly. If you could, if you could embrace that skill, if we could all embrace that skill, I think we'd hold on to our beliefs a little bit more lightly, don't Mm, you? Yes, absolutely. What is a life of greatness to you? A life of greatness to me is trying to help other people pursue greatness. Adam Grant, thank you for being one of our wisest voices. You are an absolute blessing. Thank you. (laughs) Well, thank you for having me. This has been a delight, Sarah. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Curry and Nicola Sitch. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free. Listener.